Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's turn to Luke chapter 2 and stand for the reading of God's Word. Luke 2, verses 1 through 20. This is the word of the Lord. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with the child. And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angel had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child, and all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would bless every, the words of my mouth and every one of our thoughts and meditations, you who are our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. The fact always strikes me when we read the gospel accounts of, of the incarnation that we have only one verse describing the birth of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Luke. It's, it's very similar in the Gospel of, of Matthew. There, there, the actual moment of the birth of Jesus is described very simply. But Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Right, And then it goes on to describe... The, the visit of the Magi from the east in the following days. Here in Luke, again, the, the moments of the birth of Christ are, are understated. While they were in, there in Bethlehem, the days were completed for her to give birth. 
And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. I mean, it's, it's very humble. It's all so humble. Uh, not really ordinary in that she's, right, she's not in an inn. She's in a stable. But the moment of the Son of God moving from, from womb to the world, is, it's just unremarkable. It's ordinary. It's quiet. At least where Jesus is. It's, it's so minuscule. It's so humble. Mary gave birth, swaddled her son, and laid him down to sleep. Right? Many of us have experienced similar ordinariness. Right? That's it. Later, God the Father would speak from heaven when, his, when Jesus got baptized. Right? Jesus would stand transfigured in his eternal glory before a few of the apostles. He would ascend to heaven in a cloud, right? just as, as he will one day return on the clouds. But here at his birth, everything is just ordinary. It's common, it's, it's understated, it's really just kind of earthy. Um, just as you and I came into this world, so Jesus came into this world by a woman. Where was the chorus of angels, right? Where were the earthquakes and the darkening sky as at his final hours? Where was the trumpet blast? There's nothing like that. Mary gave birth, she swaddled her son, she laid him down to sleep. Right? There's, there's a quietness to the scene that, that I think serves to underscore the incredible humility, the condescension of the Son of God in accomplishing the work that His Father gave Him to do, which was re- redeeming sinful mankind. And it's just so simple here at the start. The quietness of the scene in the stables doesn't mean there wasn't a raucous celebration and, and announcement going on elsewhere. Um, where was the noise? It was out in the fields, out in the countryside, um, where the sheep were resting and being watched by shepherds. Uh, there, there, that's where the chorus of angels was heard. Not at the courts of Herod, right? Not far away in the capital of the world in Rome. Um, Not even in the temple courts or in the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem. Not even at the stable where the eternal Son of God was drawing his first breaths as a man. These emissaries, God's angels, were sent out to the countryside, right, to a few shepherds. Even still, there were not many witnesses of the angel's announcement, just a few shepherds in the middle of the night. If it, were, uh, if it were our decision to make, we, we might have thought such an entrance into the world should take place on a, a bigger stage, right? In a metropolitan area where the world uh, would see and the word would spread like fire. But this was not God's method. And his foolishness is wiser than all the wisdom of man. Again, these facts and the obscurity and the quietness of his birth are part of, of Jesus' humility. Some would, some would know of his glory from the start, his mother, his father, other family members, the wise men, right? But his birth is shrouded in obscurity so that, so that he could lie in concealment for a time. 
Calvin writes this about the whole situation. He says, If then we desire to come to Christ, let us not be ashamed to follow those whom the Lord, in order to cast down the pride of the world, has taken from among the dung of cattle. I'm not sure why he mentions cattle instead of sheep, but he does. I think he's talking about the stables rather than the, the shepherds. But he says, you know, let us learn, not be ashamed to follow the Lord and to allow these simple things to be in our, our instructors. You know, some folks, some people will only be convinced of something if they see it on TV, <laughs> which is crazy, or if it comes from the mouth of experts. But God, God forces all those who believe in his son to receive that message from shepherds and from fishermen, right, and from converted persecutors of the church like the Apostle Paul. Um, this arrangement is, as the Apostle Paul would put it, the foolishness of God, all contributing to the, the seriousness of the Son's mission. He is not, he's not a grandstander, right? He, he's not calling pressers. Jesus or the Father are not calling pressers and searching for bright lights, Right? Jesus came to do work. He's a workman. He came to do work. He came with a job to do, and he had marching orders from his father. But what these shepherds, and that's where I want to focus, what these shepherds receive is astonishing nonetheless. From the sleepy vigilance right, of watching flocks at night, they were quickly transported to another realm completely. God gives them a picture of the throne room of heaven, the multitude of the heavenly host, praising God, saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. They hear this chorus. The shepherds go from the, you know, the quiet sounds of sheep rustling around in the darkness to the ever-present glorious chorus of heaven. Right? Perhaps they're has never been a more sudden intrusion into the, the mundane than that moment when an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, right? No preparation, there's no wind-up, there is no warning, it's just bam, this angel stands before them. Now, how do the shepherds respond to this visitation? Well, first of all, as we would expect, they are scared, Right? They are frightened. Verse 9, And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. No doubt, just the suddenness of the appearance of the angels would have been enough to frighten the most seasoned of shepherds. They were there to keep watch. But if a predator had suddenly come upon the flock, the, the adrenaline would have kicked in. And their first reaction would have been one of, of fear, of caution. If they were experienced shepherds, they would have been skilled enough to work through that quickly, that adrenaline rush, and get to work fending off the wolves. But here, an angel of the Lord stands before them, appearing suddenly. I mean, what's to fear about a, a cute angel, right? What's to fear? fear about a fluffy, cute little angel. Well, you know that's not how angels appear. We like to soften reality. 
we, we like our angels cute. We fashion a God that looks like a cow, right, for the same reason. We, we, we even make, remake God into a soft, smushy sort of grandfatherly figure, uh, you know, who would never say anything bad about anybody, let alone send anyone to hell, right? Um, the American religion, the church in America, will soften everything she can get her hands on. The church, in fact, insists on a cute and cuddly church, right? The church is just a social group that has no real authority. Uh, the moment the church follows in the train of the apostles, right, who had real authority delegated to them from God, we cry, foul. We don't like our church like that. Let's have our church soft and light and airy, and sweet like cotton candy, right? The sweetest of candies and the least substantive, right? Let's have our preacher be a soft and light and airy and handsome man, and let's have him wear bow ties. <laughs> like the French say, there are three genders, men, women, and clergy, right? And that's how we like it. Let's not talk about sin, let's not talk about the fall, let's not talk about damnation, let's not talk about judgment and God's wrath. That's all very depressing, and our lives are already too depressing anyway, right? Let's talk about movies, let's talk about artwork, right? Let's talk about books and servant leadership, right? Let's talk about how much we're not like the unwoke masses. Let's talk about those sorts of things. Let's, um, but when you focus on such things, when the goal of ministry of the church is to protect people from the fear of God, right? you know what you get. You get a people who have no idea how great and how radical and how glorious how spectacular, right? How soul-saving is the statement, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is well pleased. Whom he is pleased. Peace with God through Jesus Christ. And so when we begin to recast God, recast Jesus, recast his bride, recast church, recast even angels as plush toys, with a string we can pull from their backs, right, to get it to say what we want it to say, we lose the gospel. We lose the gospel. Peace with God. What do you mean, peace with God? Peace with God? I'm, I'm sure he likes my artwork. Right? Peace with God. Peace with God. I would never be as ignorant as the unwoke. I'm at peace with God. Right? Peace with God. I didn't realize we, we were at war with one another. To be truly happy, to be truly happy, they must first know, this is, this is Calvin, they must first know what it is to fear. We cannot experience God's grace unless we freely acknowledge our wretchedness. 
right, which should distress us no less than death itself. We cannot, that is, rise to our feet unless we are first laid low until God calls us to himself. We are all of us in the pit of hell. That is why believers cannot rejoice in God and in the grace they have in Christ until they have been moved by fear. Fear. In other words, until you acknowledge that you are a wretched sinner, not just a wretched sinner, but a wretched sinner capable of the worst kinds of sin, that you have within yourself the very same temptation as the, the worst sinners who ever lived. You will not stand in awe or understand in any way the great grace of God. You just won't understand it. We are sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, right? You, we are just like Adam and we are just like Cain and we are just like Samson and David and Solomon and Paul and yet... Uh, there's peace. And so those, those who do not acknowledge these sins will, will, those who don't see sin for what it is, will recast God as soft. And if we are willing to recast God, it's, it is but a little thing to consider angels, right, to be like those precious moments, figurines, right, those wretched, awful, I hope none of you collect them. I'm sorry. Um, but this is not what angels are like. And the reason angels aren't like that is because God's not like that. Right? Angels stand in the presence of God, and when they come before men, they reflect His holiness. Right? They reflect Him, the, the glorious lights of holiness. And Men, for that reason, fall dead before angels who are reflecting God's greatness and majesty and holiness. And that of the angels is just a reflection of that glorious holiness and majesty of, of God. Again, Calvin writes, For the majesty of God could not, could not but swallow up the whole world if there were not some mildness to mitigate the terror that it brings. We don't think about that. We don't think like this. God being terrible in his appearance, God's holiness being fearful, a terror to us. The majesty of God is terrifying. right? And those angels which reflect his glory are terrifying just as well. The holiness of God is terrifying and these angels are demonstrating that reality. There are many places in Scripture we could go to prove that point, but none so overwhelming as the book of Revelation. The angels are the ones blasting the trumpets of judgment, right? Pouring out the bowls of wrath, the wrath of God. Waging war with the dragon and the dragon's angels, right? Here, here are a few verses from chapter 10. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven clothed with a cloud. And the rainbow was upon his head and his face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book which was open. And he placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. And he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. 
I mean, the, the, the cuddly little angel doesn't really capture that, does it? And so it's, it's more than just being startled that led these shepherds to fear. They fear because, like Moses who covered his face after speaking with God, because the glory of God was reflected in his face, they see the great majesty of God and they fear. They fear. Have you heard of the time when um, Martin Luther, prior to his conversion and so-called you know, rediscovery of salvation by faith alone, was conducting his first mass. Now there, there's much we could say about that, but stick with me here. Luther believed what he had been taught about the mass, that God was physically present in the elements, whereas others um, of his colleagues were probably just simply willing to play along and not worry about that false doctrine, uh, what it really meant. But here's what happened, and this, I pulled this from um, Sproul's book, The Holiness of God, and here's how he describes it. None in attendance expected what happened. Luther began the ceremony with great poise, exuding a priestly bearing of confidence and self-control. When he came to the prayer of consecration, right, that moment in the Mass when Luther would exercise his priestly authority for the first time to evoke the power of God to perform the great miracle of transubstantiation, changing of the elements of the bread and wine into the real body and blood of Christ, which is false doctrine and unbiblical. Luther faltered at that point. He froze at the altar, and um, Sproul says he seemed transfixed. His eyes were glassy and beads of perspiration formed on his forehead. A nervous hush filled the congregation as they silently urged the young priest on. Hans Luther was growing uncomfortable, his father feeling a wave of parental embarrassment sweep over him. His son's lower lip began to quiver. He was trying to speak the words of the Mass, but no words came forth from his mouth. He went limp and returned to the table where his father and the family guests were seated. He, he had failed. He had ruined the Mass and disgraced himself and his father. What happened at the altar, um, Luther offers his own explanation as the, at the paralysis that struck when he was supposed to say the words we offer unto you, the living, the true, the eternal God. He said, this is what Luther said, at these words I was utterly stupefied and terror stricken. I thought to myself, with what tongue shall I address such majesty, seeing that all men ought to tremble in the presence of even an earthly prince? Who am I that I should lift up my eyes and raise my hands to the divine majesty. The angels surround him. At his nod, the earth trembles. And shall I, a miserable little pygmy, say, I want this, I ask for that? For I am dust and ashes and full of sin, and I am speaking to the living, eternal, and the true God. Even though, right, we because of Luther's subsequent work, would chastise Luther for believing the things that he believed as eventually, you know, um, I mean, he would chastise himself for believing those things. But even though we would chastise Luther for participating in the Mass, we still see within him a proper fear of God. Right? A proper fear of God. I believe as we grow in our faith that the fear of God, that apprehension that he is omnipotent, deepens within us, right? Even as or because we, 
we become more familiar with God's grace and kindness, we still tremble before his awesome majesty. And we always should. And when angels visit, they bring that majesty with them. To fall as if dead before angels is to acknowledge God's majesty. Wonderfully and necessarily, the, um, the first words of the angels, though, are words of comfort. Right? Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. Because we have good news for you. We have good news for you. And they tell of Jesus and they tell of the Savior of mankind, of the one who would take upon his shoulders the sins of the world, peace with God. So from, from their fear, fear rooted in God's glory and majesty comes this message of don't fear. Don't fear. What was broken in the fall is going to be corrected by my son. In other words, in, in the words of the angels, we learn that God is not then acting as a judge but he's acting with the kindness and sympathy of a father. That's what he's doing. Today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then after that announcement is when the heavens burst open to the sight of the shepherds and suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. That is the announcement of a gracious father who would go through anything, right, to gather his children to himself. And after all this glory, the angels leave and go back to heaven, it says. <laughs> they leave and go back to heaven. And the second response of the shepherds is then before us. They then respond to God's announcement with faith. Faith. Notice what it says they were saying, verse 15. Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. They believe what has been spoken to them by the angel and don't doubt from the testimony of the opened heavens what message they had received. It's not the thing which may have happened but the thing that has happened, right? And what was described was made known to them, they say, by the Lord. Faith always, therefore, then results in obedience, right? Faith results in obedience. Believing the testimony of God through his angels, they go in a hurry. They go in a hurry and find that baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. They didn't wait Right and let the words of God fade in their memories. They heard it, and they acted upon it. And note also, they exhort one another to faithfulness. They were saying to one another, let's go and see. They're, they're exhorting one another, let's go and see, let's go now, let's see. It's a wonderful sign of the faithfulness of these shepherds that they hear and immediately obey the word of God. To pull out a pipe, right, and begin to contemplate these words of the angel before acting would have been faithless. It would have been faithless. Um, there's a time for contemplation, right? We all know that there's a time to settle and to contemplate, to meditate, to, to uh, pull back. But there is never a time for contemplation that delays obedience. 
That's often how we use contemplation, to delay our obedience, right? Remember that the angel said, you will find a baby wrapped in cloths cloths and lying in a manger. That very clearly is a command from God, and they do not hesitate in their obedience, right? You will find means go look. And they go, and their faith responds with action. There is a kind of you know, impetuosity to their faith. There's a kind of violent passion to faith, right? Contrary to that is a tentative, second-guessing sort of faith, right? The shepherds could have been paralyzed by a concern for their sheep and made a decision not to go visit that baby in the major because it wouldn't be prudent to leave behind the flocks. They would have lectured themselves about prudence and this danger and that danger and eventually they just would have delayed their obedience. We often do this, brothers, don't we? We often do this. When we have a decision to make, even when the Word of God is very clear about what we should do, we delay our obedience and we settle into our passivity. The shepherd's faith was not like that. They were told they would find, and as soon as they can, they go to find, entrusting their sheep to God, right? And that should be a lesson to us. So they hurriedly go, and they find the location of their Savior and share with those around the child what they had heard. And their faith is also demonstrated in this. They, they're not offended that they find... They're not put off. They're not troubled by the fact that they find the Savior of the world in a stable. Think about that faith, right? They are not prevented from admiring Jesus even even though the circumstances are so gnarly, right? No one wants to go visit a baby in a stable, right? No one wants to do that. You want to go somewhere warm and clean. And yet they go, Calvin says, the glory of God was so fully before their eyes and reverence for his word was so deeply impressed upon their minds that the elevation of their faith easily rose above all that appeared mean or despicable in Christ. Right? All this filth. All this simplicity. And that's faith, right? That is faith, brothers and sisters. Putting God's glory before your eyes while reverencing his word in our minds is faith. And so so they demonstrate faith. The end result of all of this, as we see from the, the end of the passage, is that they are joyful. They're joyful. The last verse of our passage says, the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for that they had heard, for all that they had heard and seen just as had been told them. So they're glorifying and praising God. I imagine the shepherds walking down whatever lane they're in, across the plains, skipping like calves, right? Hooting and hollering, shouting to the heavens, making fools of themselves by allowing um, the joy within their hearts to animate their bodies in worship, right? Which is always difficult for Presbyterians to comprehend. The joy of your hearts, first of all, is hard but then the joy actually spilling out into the animation of your body. 
They go worshiping with their bodies, right? Perhaps that's the greatest part of their faith, more than their fear, more than their obedience. And so that night, those shepherds don't become, think of this, they don't become apostles. They don't, be, they don't take a high position in the household of Joseph. They simply return to their shepherding with, though, knowledge of their Savior. Their faith has not removed them from the world, Right, it, is, it had uh, not made their lives any easier. It had not changed their vocation. They were still uh, working in the fields, but what it did is filled their hearts with joy. Uh, sinners rejoicing in their Savior who rescued their souls from hell but left them to labor among the sheep. So this knowledge was enough for them as it should be for you. Right? God may not make your earthly lives easier, but he will make your eternity most blessed. Right? God will not transport you out of this world when you believe in his son, but he will, fix, he will bring your mind off the things of the world and then fix them on his glory. And that allows you to endure a lot. Right? God did not undo the fallenness of the world on the day his son was born. The cycle of brokenness and vapor, as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, that will continue. But he was making peace with man. Right? You have a Savior. You have a Savior standing between you and the wrath of God. You have a Savior which causes him not only to, to put up his sword, but to love you as he loves his only son. Right? Not only is God not angry with you, he loves you loves you. He knows you. And so, brothers and sisters, you, you know not just about the cradle of Jesus. You, you know about his life. You know about his death. You know about his resurrection. You know about his ascension. You know about his session. You, you know about the fact that he is quickly coming again, right? You know more than these shepherds knew. And why do you only have a portion of their joy? Right? You know so much more than they knew. Right? Calvin asks the question this way, if the cradle of Christ had such an effect upon them as to make them rise from the stable and the manger to heaven, how much more powerful ought the death and resurrection of Christ to be in raising us up to God? And so... Let the contemplation of that question pound out of us any unbelieving and unjoyful contemplation of God's mercy toward us. Right? It should pound that out of our hearts. With such knowledge, joy is the only proper response. Right? With such knowledge of God's redeeming ways, joy is the only proper response. Our souls should daily rejoice as we contemplate these words about God's kindness to sinful man. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Right? The shepherds go from fear to faith to joy. From fear to faith to joy. Such is the path of all those whom God is rescuing. But it's not just a path. Right? Fear and faith and joy are all lifelong lasting responses to this holy and gracious God of heaven. Amen? 
fear and faith and joy.